8, and we will be in verses 1 through 13, so the whole chapter. And in this chapter, we come to the end of cycle number 2 and the beginning of cycle number 3 in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation, as we go through, is broken up into seven distinct sections. And if you remember, cycle 2 or section 2 began in chapter 4 with John's glorious vision of the throne room, and then from there went on to chapter 5 to the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, the only one worthy to open the scroll and carry out the plan of God. When this one stepped into the picture and came forward to conquer, you remember that he stepped forward as the lamb who was slain. And then when he began to open the scroll in chapter 6, we saw that even though Christ is victorious, his people will still suffer many trials and tribulations in this life while they're here on earth. In the fifth seal, we left the earthling's sufferings behind and saw the cry of the saints in heaven as they pleaded with the Lord for vindication and restoration. And when the sixth seal was opened, that prayer of the saints, that, that plea for justice was answered in three scenes. The final judgment on the wicked who cried out for the rocks and trees and mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb didn't end with their judgment it ended with their cry who can stand and then we saw those people who were sealed on the earth from having to endure the same horrific judgment as those who did not love or honor the Lord and then finally the great multitude the the saints from all of the ages past present and future standing in an answer to their cry who can stand you see them standing before the Lord worshiping the one who sits upon the throne and the lamb and these last seat three scenes are leading up to that final judgment when God pronounces his sentence on his enemies when he judges the living and the dead and when the saints inherit the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not made much of here. All of these things, new heaven, new earth, God pronouncing judgment, the the populating of the lake of fire, all of those things take place here in cycle 2 in one verse that we're about to read. One verse in the seventh seal that is given. But as we make our way through the book of Revelation, what you'll notice is that with each successive cycle, the picture of final judgment and the picture of the new heavens and the new earth gets clearer and clearer. So by the time you get to the end, it's all about the new heavens and the new earth. But here in cycle two, it only gets one verse. Revelation 8, 1. And we'll be covering the whole chapter today, so verses 1 through 13. But we're going to begin with just this one verse. Verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that Your Word is clear. Thank You that it teaches and guides us in the way we ought to go. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to take in what you have spoken, Lord. You know all things. 
You hold in your hand the soul and the breath of all mankind and every living thing. And so I pray this morning that you would turn hearts to seek your face, that your people would cling more closely to your Son, that you would help us, God, not just to go away with our ears tickled, but to go away with our hearts changed. Lord, help me to preach and help us to hear, Lord. Write your word upon our hearts. It's in your name we ask. It's in your name we pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, over Christmas, my youngest son, he got some puzzles. And uh, I helped him put put them together. And they're, of course, they're less than 50 pieces. It's not difficult. Uh, One puzzle was a shark, and he would put the whole shark together, and then he'd ask for help. Another was a train, and he'd have the train all together. Pretty easy. But those, those background pieces, right, the rocks, the trees, the skies, the seas, they're a little more challenging for him. And it reminded me of the worst puzzle that I ever put together in my life. I have never put together a puzzle since. And uh, it was a thousand-piece mosaic puzzle, and the whole thing was, was made up of various smaller pictures. <clears throat> and if you then put it all together and step back, looking at all these small pictures, you could see the big picture, how they all fit together. And you could take each individual piece, and you could look at it, and on it there were a bunch of little scenes, and you could, you could tell they're unrelated, they're, they're disjointed, but they're there, and, and if you look closely, you can tell that there's something going on here. This is a picture of something. It's not just colors. It's something happening. But it wasn't until you fit the piece where it went in the puzzle that you could really understand why this particular puzzle piece went where it did. Now, of course, you could see the little picture or pictures, the individual pieces, and you could make something up uh, of them. You could look at it and say, oh, this is, you know, this is a, a scene in the snow, or this is, this is a closet in a dark room. This is, this is a, a sunset in bright red. You could tell what was a pictures. But until and once and not until it was given its proper place in the whole, in the big picture, could its significance be understood. Well, one of the reasons why so many people have so much trouble, I think, with the book of Revelation is because of uh, an unfortunate ignorance of the Old Testament. Either much of the Old Testament has been ignored or uh, a method of interpretation has been adopted that says, well, you don't really need to use the books of the Bible to understand Scripture. You just need to let every verse stand on its own. And you can understand some verses that way. But not every verse is meant to be understood that way or taken on its own. In fact, most verses of the Bible are not meant to be understood that way. They're not meant to be taken by themselves and and left alone. They're to be read in the context of the whole of Scripture. If you want to rightly understand the verse that is in front of you, you have to understand its place in the big picture. So you can study a verse on its own and profit. You should. But... Unless you see how it fits into that 31,102-piece puzzle of the Word, you're not going to have an easy time understanding the significance of that single piece. 
Revelation 8.1 is an example of that. Most people, I think, interpret the seventh seal to be the seven trumpets. Right? The seal is broken. Out come the trumpets. That must be what the seal is. But there's no reason to think that when you read the text. There's no indication here that the seal is the seven trumpets. In fact, we're told straightforwardly that the seal is the opposite of what trumpets do. The seal is silence in heaven for a half an hour. That's the seal. Silence, not the sounding of a trumpet. And it's fitting, isn't it? It's appropriate. Because in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, silence comes whenever God's people are delivered. Right? Be silent and know that I am the Lord. Be still and know that I am the Lord. Or in Exodus, when they're between Migdal and the sea, God says to the Israelites, Be silent and see the salvation of your God. Silence in the Old Testament comes when the Lord comes to deliver His people. And it also comes when God's enemies are once and for all finally judged. Psalm 31, 17. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them silently go to Sheol. Or Isaiah 47, 5. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called mistress of kingdoms. Amos 8, 2 and 3. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere. It is silence. Lamentations 2.10 The elder of the daughter Zion sits in silence on the ground. They have thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth on. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Habakkuk 2.20 But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Zechariah 2.13 Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for He has roused Himself today from His holy dwelling. Or Jeremiah 7, 34. And I will silence the city of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Isaiah 41, verses 1 and 5. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw together for judgment. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and came. Zephaniah 1.7 Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord, that day so often seen in the Old Testament, a picture of final judgment. And so if you ever wondered what that judgment will sound like, this is it. It's not weeping and wailing. It's not people frantically giving their defense. No, the Lord will speak and every mouth will be stopped as people realize who it is they have offended. And they will be in that moment acutely aware of their guilt with a conviction stronger than anything anyone in this life has ever experienced. Have you ever felt guilty? Right? You're, but you're able to distract yourself. You're able to brush it off. 
You're kind of able to outrun it or escape it. You won't be on that day. It'll be a conviction inescapable, so strong and so palpable that nobody will dare to open their mouths. Judgment will be characterized by a dreadful silence. This is the seventh seal. Those who were crying out for mountains to fall on them and hide them, now there's nothing left for them to say. Judgment has come, it has been passed. And that's, that's the picture here. It's a glimpse of, of final judgment. It finishes this second section. And it's a reminder to us as God's people, those who will put their faith in Him, that He will vindicate and deliver us. Yes, this will be a a hard life. Life on earth will often not be pleasant. Yes, there will be pressure to compromise, pressure to give in. But in the end, those who overcome will stand. They will stand when the earth is dissolved and the heavens pass away with the roar. They will uh, have every tear wiped away and will live forever filled with joy in the presence of the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. And with this, the second cycle comes to a close. Now remember, this was from the perspective of God's people. We suffer in the world as we follow Christ. But in the end, we will stand. Our enemies will be judged and they will be unable to give a single word in their defense. And so this cycle, the the suffering and the vindication of God's people, that's what it's about. Trouble here on earth for a little while, but in the life to come and forever after that, No eye has seen or ear has heard what await those who were faithful to their Lord. It's appropriate that it ends with judgment. Because now in verse 2, the third cycle begins. And this cycle, this section, is the suffering of the wicked. And it's, it's viewing the same thing as what we saw before. Life in this world accumulating in final judgment, but instead of being from the perspective of those who are in heaven, as the Christians are depicted throughout this book, now we are going to see it from the perspective of those who dwell upon the earth, from those uh, perspective of those who are worldly or who are enemies of God. And so this third cycle from chapter 8, verse 2 to eleven eighteen looks at the same thing that we've just looked at in the second, life in this world and then the judgment, but from the perspective of those who are lost. Now keep this in mind as we read verses 2 through 13, the first four trumpets. It begins like the previous section with an introduction, but where John saw the, the heavenly throne room that is set up uh, for the opening of the seals, here... The introduction comes that sets up the trumpets that will happen in verses 6 through 13. Verses 2 through 5 are preparing the ground for the trumpet blast that will come. Verse 2, it says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and he stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. 
and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It begins, these seven trumpets, with the prayers of God's people, doesn't it? The censer and the smoke are the prayers of the saints, and specifically their prayers for vindication. That's what we read in chapter 6. How long, O Lord? That's what the, the psalmist prays over and over again in the book of Psalms. How long, O Lord? You pray this every time you pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. How long, O Lord? Your will be done. And you're concerned because of the evil that you see in the world around you and the increase of wickedness in the land. It can be disheartening, can't it? How many times have you seen something happening or, or just thought of something going on and it drove you to the Lord in prayer? And you know, you know God is just and you know God will do what is right and you know He's coming and you know He sees all of these things happening around you and you wonder, you can't help but wonder, God, why aren't you doing anything? It's like Psalmist in Psalm 74. He prays, God, Look at what is happening in the land. Take your hands out of your pockets and do something. And it often feels as though your prayers, they get no higher than the ceiling of your room, doesn't it? And you wonder if they're even heard. Or even if you know God hears them, you wonder if He'll answer or if He cares. I mean, certainly He sees the evil in this world. And certainly, since He is God, He is concerned about it more than you are. So why isn't He doing something? Well, he is doing something. And your prayers for justice and for righteousness, they do not go unheard. Here, in the introduction to the seven trumpets that represent the collective suffering in the world, those prayers are what bring about the judgment. The saints are praying for the Lord to come. They're praying for the Lord to do what is right. They're praying for justice. And as they do, each prayer like a single amber settles on the golden altar before the Lord. And they're there. They're collecting. They're building up. They're piling up until the time is right. Either for a, a temporal judgment, like a natural disaster, or a war, or some other crisis, or especially... The final judgment. And then in verse 5, these embers are unleashed. The censer is filled with fire from the altar. The altar piled high with the prayers of the saints. And it is hurled down to the earth. And so you see the prayers of the faithful. They're building up and building up until they result in justice being poured out. And so in this cycle on the suffering of the wicked, it is coming in answer to the prayers of God's people. It's a reminder to us that it's good to pray for what is right. It's good to pray for justice and for wrongs to be righted. God does hear them, and God will answer at the appropriate time. And that's what's about to happen. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." 
The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Well, to put this, what we have just read, to frame it rightly, I want to ask a question. And the question is this. It's one we don't think about nearly enough and maybe even think about wrongly. Do Christians suffer more than non-Christians? And I don't mean eternally. I mean in this life. Do those who have put their trust in Christ suffer more or less than those who have not? Who has it better? Who has more enjoyment? Who has less suffering? Those who love the Lord or those who are lost? I think it's a foolish thing to think looking at everything in the world around us and and seeing all of the problems that afflict the world, I think it is foolish to think that in the end or in this life, Christians suffer more. I mean, have you lived in this world? Do those outside of Christ enjoy what they want all the time? Do they have the money that they want? Do they have security? Are they ever satisfied? Do they have health? Are their families all together and, and thriving? What does life look like for those who are outside of Christ? I mean, Christian, do not think for a single moment or ever again entertain the thought that those who are lost are better off than you. Well, you think, well, what about the psalm? What about Psalm 73? I envied the wicked in their prosperity. Now, don't you remember? The psalmist was deceiving himself. And there may be a select few who seem to have it better. But what about most people? What about the people that you know, your neighbor, those in your family or outside of Christ? It isn't true that Christians suffer more. Our trials are different, but they're not worse. I mean, think about it for five seconds. You'll realize it's true. Think about what's happening in the world around you. I mean, for one, those who are worldly suffer the consequences of their sin, don't they? I mean, in your own life, In your own life, how much pain have you avoided because you acted with wisdom? And how many people do you know whose lives and whose families have been destroyed because of the stranglehold that sin has on them? It promised them pleasure. It delivered them pain. It promised satisfaction. It delivered them emptiness. It drags men and women down into the hole, tells them there's gold down there, and when they come down in, it kills them. I mean, so many people suffer in this world because of the direct consequences of their sinful, evil actions, and they don't often even realize that what they're doing is wrong and is the cause of their distress. It's like a blind man walking through thorns. He doesn't know how to get out, and he doesn't know what's pricking him. How many times you yourself have you been spared 
because of the fear of the Lord and a hatred of sin. I mean, temptations, that would destroy you, but the fear of the Lord kept you, or the wisdom of the Word cut through the deception. I mean, how many battles and needless relationship-wounding fights have you been able to avoid because you knew that a kind word turns away wrath? And even when it didn't, because of the, of, of, of the premium of forgiveness, you were able to restore that relationship. How many times have you been blessed by your children and you knew that they were a blessing from the Lord? And you see your family or friends around you who do not know the Lord, who do not raise their children in the fear of the Lord. And you know what the children become? They become a curse. And you've seen it. Your family is better off. And you have avoided a lot of hardship because you are in Christ. How often have you been saved by wisdom from the power of sin? Now those in the world don't have that. They do not have the word or the power. And they suffer the consequences of their sin in terrible, self-destructive ways. And when calamities strike, I mean earthquakes, tsunamis, fires, car accidents, cancers, or great crisis, bombs being dropped, famines, great depressions, do the wicked suffer more? I mean, those things are indiscriminate, aren't they? Everyone without exception is affected. Even right now, everybody in this room is being affected in one way or another by everything going on in the world. When when a hurricane comes, Christians and non-Christians alike are equally affected. But the wicked, those who refuse God, they have it worse, don't they? Because if you're a Christian, you have hope in spite of that catastrophe, don't you? You know that whatever's lost is temporary anyway, and you can't keep it if you wanted to. And you can live without it, knowing that the Lord himself has taken it away. More than that, you know that God has a plan in it, and God will sustain you and help you. And even if he doesn't, it's for your everlasting good. You have a light that cannot be dimmed. You have a hope that cannot be extinguished. You're on the path that leads to life. You have everlasting life so that even if you die, you shall live. What does the unbelieving world have? They don't have any of that. When disaster strikes, it strikes everything they have. It's not working out for their good, but for their destruction. All things. Where can they go for hope? Where can they turn to unburden their hearts? Where can they turn to for light and life? Or where can they cast their anxieties? There's nowhere. There is no hope when disaster strikes. There is no assurance Uh, of good in the end there is no eternal plan or purpose it's just random destruction and you got caught in its path how do you deal with that if you're not a Christian how do you deal with that well with either an unrealistic confidence in yourself or some other human institution things that have no power to prevent those things or can bring good out of them or Or, instead of an overt, arrogant confidence that can get you nowhere, you just give up and resign yourself to misery. I mean, what is the alternative outside of Christ? No, I I am convinced that those outside of Christ suffer more in this life and in the life to come, especially in our day. And the main point of these trumpets is not so much the individual terrors that they bring, 
but they come all together and they show us that those who are worldly suffer more in this life. God's people were affected, one in four. Here, it's a third. More is lost. More are killed. The suffering is greater. The life of those who survive is harder. The forests are burned. The seas are impassable. The waters are poisoned. The sky is dark. It's not a pleasant place to be outside of Christ. And, and that's the point that the details of these four trumpets, they only serve to make that one point stronger. If you're outside of Christ, there is nothing good for you ultimately in this life and, and hardly at all now in this fallen world. I mean, you notice that each of these trumpets touches on the elements of creation. They show the cursedness of living in a fallen world. You wonder, so, so get in your mind. B main point, verses 2 through 12. What is it? This world is fallen and people suffer because they live in a fallen world. Consider day 3, the creation of the land and the trees and the plants. The first trumpet destroys a third of them. Day two was the creation of the seas by separating the water from the land. And day five, the creatures that dwell therein. The second trumpet sends the land fiery back into the sea and kills a third of the creatures that live in them. The sixth day was the creation of man placed in a well-watered garden, a garden fed by four rivers. The third trumpet poisons that water so that many people die. And the first day and the fourth day of creation, creation of light and of the sun and the moon and the stars, when the fourth angel blows his trumpet, the celestial bodies are struck and a third of the light no longer shines. Now these are not literal cataclysms. I mean, they couldn't be. If the seas turned to blood, more than just a third of the creatures would be killed. They would all be killed. And what you, what you have happening here is a picture of living in a fallen world, in a fallen creation, don't you? And the wicked suffer because they live here in a world that is not what it was meant to be like. Nowhere is this clearer, I think, than in death. I heard, I heard this life described once by a, a Dutch theologian. It's actually part of their uh, baptism catechism. So any of you who grew up in a, in a Dutch church and uh, heard her, uh, were at a baptism service, you would have heard them saying, uh, this life, which is nothing more than a constant death, Life is a constant death. Death reminds us above all other things that this world is not the way that God intended it to be. And so these trumpets are not, they're not a picture of cataclysms to come. They are a picture of the consequences of the curse in Genesis 3 and living in a fallen world. Now maybe it's a silly example, but I remember once we, we went away on vacation and... Uh, and I locked everything up around the house, and unfortunately, I locked a squirrel in the shed. Two weeks later, when we got back, it was really starting to smell, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And, and then a week later, it was awful, and I had to take the whole shed apart. And when I found, found it, it, it just made you want to vomit. I mean, some of you, you've smelled this kind of thing before. You can remember it right now. You don't escape from it if you've ever smelled death and then seen how, how it decays and distorts and destroys what was alive. You don't forget it. It's grisly and it's disgusting. And listen, it's supposed to be that way because it reminds you that something is wrong. Every time you're at a funeral, 
Something in you ought to be crying out in anguish that this is not how it was supposed to be. I mean, death is not just a part of life. Have you ever heard that expression? Death is just a part of life? I hate that expression. Death is our great and final enemy to be defeated, not a natural part of life to be warmed up to and accepted. I mean, since when was something that wanted to kill you your friend? Anyone who tells you death is just a part of life, they might as well tell you to go buddy up with the one person who might want to murder you. I mean, death is not your friend. Death is not something to just be accepted. It is something to be feared, and it is something to be escaped from. And death outside of Christ, it only leads to a greater, a worse, a second death. And you know this, don't you? When you experience the cold touch of death, either in a family member who has passed or a friend lost too soon, or, or even in yourself, an accident or a sickness that was a close call, you know this is something unnatural. This is, there's, there's something revolting about it. It does not belong. It does not belong in God's creation. It's not how things were supposed to be. Everybody knows it. They just don't know what to do about it. And the only advice they get is, is, well, just accept it. Or now, thanks to our murderous government, and that's not an exaggeration, the advice is, well, just hasten it along and die with dignity. Death, listen, death is not a part of life. It's the absence of life. It's the end of life. It's a destruction of life. And it's something that was never meant to be. Something out of place about it. And that's why you feel so repulsed and have anxiety about it and are anguished about it. You know it doesn't belong. Why does death come? Because the one thing worse than death is sin. And the wages of sin is death. And not just death in the abstract, but death uh, coming randomly. Death because of trials in the world. But death from the hand of the judge. Death from the hand of God. And so it's not just that people die, but it's that God takes their life away. You see, everything that happens in those four trumpets, the cursing unto death that comes upon a fallen world, it doesn't come just because the world has fallen. It comes every time, every life snuffed out from the altar of God as judgment because of sin. I mean, I think of Amos. He's speaking of the city of Jerusalem. He says, Shall disaster befall a city, and I, the Lord, have not caused it? It's a rhetorical question. Of course God has caused it. And even here, where does the, the, the trial of every trumpet, the judgment of the trumpet, where does it originate? The censer is thrown down from the altar of who? Of God. Hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown down upon the earth. Uh, uh, something smoking like a great fiery mountain is thrown into the sea. A great star fell from heaven into the rivers and the springs. And the celestial bodies are struck on all of it at the command of God carried out by his messengers, the angels. This is God's judgment on a sinful world. It's not here the end of all time, but judgment that carries on throughout time. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. Trumpets throughout the Old Testament were used to announce the judgment of God. I mean, think of Jericho. Think of the final once for all judgment. The trumpet sounds, and when the trumpet blows, judgment begins. But even more than this, we're, we're told in no uncertain terms 
Right in the book of Romans, Romans 8.20, that God Himself is bringing these disasters to pass. It says in Romans 8.20, For the creation, the universe, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know now... For we now know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see what it says? Creation was subjected to futility. Who did it? God did it. Why did He do it? So that the creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's groaning, it says, in the pains of childbirth. Why? So that it would be set free from its bondage to corruption. And not just set free, but obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You understand what that means? You understand what these four trumpet judgments are meant to accomplish? The entire universe is used by the Lord against His enemies to judge them and punish them for their sins. That's creation is subjected to futility. And these natural judgments are soon going to give way to supernatural, cosmic, eternal judgments in the three woes. Judgments upon those who dwell upon the earth. Upon those who are earthly and worldly and do not love Christ or His gospel. And the reason God does it is why? Well, He does do it to judge. That's obvious. But he also does it to warn. Judgment has begun. Everyone can see that. But he also brings these curses to warn us and to jar us into seeing that we need a Savior. They were subjected to futility in the hope that it would be set free. The world has fallen. Everything in creation its broken, isn't it? The sun that gives life also burns you. The water that sustains you can drown you. The food that feeds you can poison you. That There are so many good things in this world that could sweep you away into bliss. At the beauty of it. The, the enjoyment of it. You've seen this before. Maybe you've seen a picture and you thought, I want to go there and see that. That's, that's incredible. And you see these things. But what always happens? You sigh and you realize... As much enjoyment you had in a meal or as much beauty as you've seen, it's all marred. It's all fleeting, isn't it? What's the expression we use to describe that? You've come back down to earth. It's almost like earth is a place where majesty and beauty now goes to die. And he's found here, yes, glimpses of what life could be, but it's cursed and corrupted. And everyone knows this. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And some make a a peace with it, an uneasy truce. But most people don't, and even those who do don't for long. Most people know there's more to life than this. There's more than this futile, fallen state. Do you know that every time you feel that, it's not your imagination? It's true. And not only is it true, it's God crying out to you that you are fallen and that you live in a world that has fallen. 
It is God Himself. He's forbidding you from being satisfied with this life. That will perish so that maybe you will seek Him and grope for Him and find Him and inherit the life that does satisfy and will not pass away. Acts 17.27 God orders times and seasons and puts men where they are in the times and places that they live so that they would reach out and seek Him and find Him. Something is wrong in the world. And no individual and no government and no institution for thousands of years have ever been able to make it any better because they can't. The answer is not found here, nor can it be. It is found in Christ and outside of Him, who is the one bright spot in all of the universe, there is no hope. There is only disappointment. And these troubles that people endure, these earthly sufferings that you face are meant to point you to Christ before something worse happens. These tremblings of the earth assure us that worse judgment will come. These tremblings of the earth, these cataclysms, thousands swept away. And you wonder, why why is the Lord doing this? One of the reasons He's doing it is to, to wake you up so that you will seek Him. Revelation 9, 20. We'll get there soon. After these next two trumpets, it says... That even after all of this, these wake-up calls, these rattlings of the saber, the warnings against the world, it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and isles of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. You want to live your life and serve a God who cannot see or hear or walk? Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So you see what the Lord is doing in verses 2 through 12. Judging, yes, judgment has begun. Look how many are swept away even today. You have billions of examples. Judgment will be completed. It reminds us you can be sure of that. But it's meant to warn you of something worse. It's meant to make you stop and seek and find and repent and believe. Of course, in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, they don't do that, do they? They don't repent. Like Pharaoh, they harden their hearts and their hearts are hardened. Is that how you respond to the disasters and the calamities in the world around you? Do you see God at work and then curse Him? Or do you see the the terrors in the world and, and blame the Lord as if He's done something wrong? Do you have such a low view of righteousness and justice and what is right that when His judgment falls, you call Him unjust? Or in arrogance, deny His existence? Because how could there possibly be a being in the world who knows better than you about what to do in this terrible situation? And all of those responses, they harden your heart. Or, when you see and hear of those things, do they wake you up? Do they show you the the sinfulness of sin that God would respond so dramatically, so severely towards sin? And instead of thinking, well, God must, you know, be really, really harsh, you think, no, no, sin must be that severe. And it reveals to you the cursedness of this world. Now, this world is good, but it's fallen and it's marred. And when you see those things and injustice being done, does it it create in you a yearning for righteousness? 
and for a world without death makes you cry out, this is not how things are supposed to be. There must be more to life than this. Do you know who put that there? God put that there. And if that's you, and you see all those things, and you recognize that this morning, understand those thoughts and feelings are meant to point you to the one who can deliver you, who can put an end to death, and who will make all things right. Christ Jesus the Lord. They're meant to lead you to repentance and faith in Him. Every time you see a news headline of a corrupt government, it should remind you of His perfect kingdom to come. When a, when a, when a, a life is swept away in a calamity or in a sickness, it reminds you of the one who is to come, who will take every sickness away. Everyone who's lost in lo- loses their life. It ought to point you to the one who holds eternal life in his hand and bestows it on all of those who would come to him. In fact, remember his exact words. He's confronted about a catastrophe. Something bad happened and he says to the people, what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and it killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you ask Jesus, why do these things happen? You know what he would say? They happen because of sin. And sinners are swept away every day. And it could be you caught in the next calamity. You don't know. But you can know this. If you repent, you will not perish. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is screaming out to you in the futility of this life and the futility of this work, of your work and the calamities all around you in your own pain and your own suffering warning you to turn to Him before it's too late. And if you turn... He will welcome you and forgive you and keep you. He will deliver you. He will cover you by his blood and reconcile you to the Lord your God. There is one escape, one savior from all of the futility in this life. It's emptiness and it's cursedness. And he is Christ Jesus, the Lord. If you're here this morning and you know him, you are blessed above all people in the world. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Him, every hope that you cling to is just an illusion that will pass away. But there is a hope in Christ that will never pass away. Go to Him this morning. Don't let another hour go by outside of Christ. You do not know what tomorrow holds. But you can know that Christ will save all of those who come to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would give people the grace to come to You this morning, Lord, if they don't know You. Lord, that they would never look at a calamity or futility or their own emptiness the same again. But that they would know, Lord, that Your hand is in it. Lord, You do not willingly, You do not from the heart destroy the work of Your hands. But You will judge justly and rightly. And Lord, I pray that nobody would put their hope in anything outside of you, Lord. They are idols of wood, stone, hay, stubble, imaginations and machinations of men. But Lord, you 
have sent your Son to redeem us from the curse of the law and to save us from the futile way of life we inherited from our forefathers. Lord, thank you that for us, for those who have put their trust in Christ, nothing is meaningless, nothing is futile, and all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, I pray that this morning your people would be strengthened, Lord, to trust you and to face the trials in the world with an unshakable confidence. And for those who don't know you, Lord, let this be a day for them of salvation, that they would be able to say, this is the day. This is the day when the burden fell off of their back and their souls rose up and they were free. Lord, all of the futility in this world points them to your Son. I pray that you would give them eyes to see it. It's in Jesus' name and his name alone we pray. Amen.